You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. All right, Acts chapter 10. Good to see everybody tonight. Uh, I met some new friends over here from uh, Michigan in town, and, uh, and, and they're here. Hey, they've been, uh, they've been watching the church on, on, online, so they've been checking us out. So just, just a reminder to behave, okay? You're on camera sometimes. You, need to, you just make sure you're behaving. Uh, at, at, you know, people are, are checking us out. So anyway, great to, ha- great to have uh, them here. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Now, next Wednesday, we're going to begin, and I need to clarify this because there's some confusion. Next Wednesday, we're going to begin a study on the book of Psalms. And we're going to start with Psalm chapter 1, and then the next Wednesday, we'll be in Psalm chapter 2. And the next Wednesday, Psalm chapter 3. And we're going to go all the way through the Psalms. And some of you are saying, really? Yes, we are. And you're going to love it because the Psalms are rich. Now, we'll take breaks. We'll take some breaks here and there. Uh, but we're going to take one psalm per week, and we're going to learn about how the psalms are arranged and the, the depth and theology of the psalms and what they teach us about Christ. Uh, you know, there are a lot of psalms that are messianic. They are, they are speaking specifically about Jesus. We're going to look at those and be encouraged by those. So next week, Psalm chapter 1. I've been getting some new resources together, and uh, I'm just excited to, to, to begin that. So... Uh, I, I'm hoping that part of what the book of Psalms will do for us is it's going to lead into uh, even, even more prayer time in, 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 in our lives. And so we'll, we'll talk more with that, about that. But tonight we're in Acts chapter 10. I want to give you the recipe for life-changing worship. This, this uh, study came out of my just um, time alone with God. So I think it's important that we get along with our Bibles, get along with the Lord, and read our Bibles, and let God speak to us through His Word. And that's part of our D-group ministry. D-groups are our discipleship groups, groups of three to five people, gender-specific, uh, gender that meet together. And uh, when they get together to meet, they talk about what God has taught them in the Word. So like in my D-group, I'll say something like, what did you hear from God this week? And everybody kind of share, shares their their here journal, right, Micah? That's what that's what we do. Shares their here journal, and the here is H E A R. The H stands for highlight, so that's the passage you're focusing on, where God, you know, really spoke to you. The E is explain. So in your journal, you're writing down the meaning of the passage in your own words, which is a really helpful way to, you know, kind of grasp what the passage is saying. The A is for application, so you begin to answer the question, how does this passage apply to my life? And then the R is response. How are you going to respond? What are you going to do in response to what God has shown you? So the passage I'm teaching tonight, and I've refined it a little bit, okay, but the passage I'm teaching tonight came out of my here journal, just reading through the book of Acts, and God showed me some things I got excited about, and I jotted them down, and I'm going to share those uh, tonight with you. And we're talking about the recipe for life changing worship. You know, the right recipe can produce great results if followed correctly. And we're going to talk about the recipe for worship that changes lives. And this is a this is a big deal because when many people think about worship, 
they think about a place, like a, a, a building. And, and, and buildings are important because that's where we go to, to worship. I'm grateful for our buildings, our church buildings. Uh, they are gifts from the Lord and a blessing. Um, but a lot of people, when they think of worship, all they think about is the place. Where are we going to go? Where, where do we go to worship? Some people think about a, a, a program or even a preference being met. Like, I want to go worship at this church because they meet my preferences. And I'm, I'm, I don't like that church because they don't meet my preferences. And they're thinking about worship in terms of, are my preferences being met? Does the, does the preacher preach the way I want him to? Do they sing the songs that I like? Uh, you know, is the, is, you know, is, is the ambiance the way that I prefer? And, and a lot of people, when they think worship, they think, okay, preferences, preferences, preferences. Uh, and that's really not what worship is all about. Worship is about God's people getting together and God working through his people to transform lives. That's what worship is about. So that the result is God gets glory, right? If God's not getting glory, then we have not worshiped. We're going to show, uh, I want to show you tonight how God gets some Christians together and he gets them together with some folks who were not Christians and he works through the Christians to get the message out and the non-Christians' lives are changed and God gets the glory. And as we read this passage, we're going to see some, some ingredients, uh, ten of them specifically, for life-changing uh, worships. So look there in Acts chapter 10, verse 2. And I, I know you say ten points. How long is this going to take, Pastor Wade? All right, we're going to go through it quickly. The church I pre- uh, preached at this, uh, this week, they had a big uh, monitor on the back wall, and they had three... Uh, clocks. One was how long your actual. One was the length of the service. The other was how long your sermon had been going from the beginning. And they had another one that timed your points. So it showed you when you start point one, how long has point one been going? So you know when it's time to go to point two. You know what I did? I ignored all of them. Just so you know. Okay. All right. Ten ingredients for life-changing worship. Acts chapter ten, verse one. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. A centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. If you remember, last week we talked about another centurion who exemplified great faith, knowing that Jesus could just speak the word and his servant would be healed. So now we're looking at another uh, uh, centurion in Caesarea. And notice here, this man seems to be on the right track, all right? He's worshiping uh, as much as he knows about the Hebrew God. He respects the Hebrew God, and he's worshiping with the Jews, and he's doing things like uh, praying and giving alms. And, and it says here that he's doing this out of a fear for God. So this fear for God is this, this desire to know who the true God is so he can worship him. So God responds to that, and it says about the ninth hour Of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror, you would have too, and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. Having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. 
So Cornelius, this, this Roman military leader, man of great importance, is seeking after the one true God. He, wants to, he fears God, so he wants to know who the true God is. He can worship Him. And so God honors that by arranging for him to send for some messengers to come and tell him the way to know the one true God. That's what's happening here. Here, And he gives them very specific instructions. Men, uh, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called um, Peter. Now, meanwhile, I won't read the entire passage, but in uh, verses 9 through 16, God appears to Peter in a vision because God needs to prepare Peter's heart for what's about to happen. Cornelius is sending messengers to say, Hey, Peter, I need you to come preach to this centurion in Caesarea. But before they get there, God needs to do a work in Peter's heart. So he appears to him in a vision three times, and the vision is this sheet, uh, something like a sheet, uh, and in the sheet are unclean animals. And unclean according to the, the, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Animals that the Jews were forbidden to eat. And he sees these unclean animals, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, pigs, pork. They weren't to eat pork. He sees other unclean animals forbidden to eat. And uh, the Lord says, arise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, I can't do that. I'm a, I'm a good Jew. I don't eat unclean animals. Uh, and, and the Lord says, I'm trying to teach you something here. And in verse 15, he says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this is God's way of saying that because Christ has fulfilled the law, all the requirements of the law, that he is now making a way for Gentiles, who the Jews considered unclean, to come to the Lord. And so Peter needed to understand, if this is going to happen, I've got to be willing to go into a Gentile's house. Because according to the the Jewish mindset to go into a Gentile house made you unclean. So he's doing all this in his heart to let him know that, that the ceremonial laws no longer apply the same way that they did. Uh, in fact, this is a major transition where God does not forbid the eating of animals that the Old Testament calls unclean. That's why I had bacon this week. And it was wonderful, right? It, because it's no longer considered unclean. And in verse 17 it says, Peter was inwardly perplexed. What's going on here? Why is God appearing and speaking to me and showing me these unclean animals, telling me to eat these unclean animals? He's inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, called out to ask whether Simon was called Peter, who was called Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Then he goes downstairs. They say, we're from Cornelius. We want you to come back because Cornelius was told by God, you have something to tell him, a message for him. And now Peter's kind of connecting the dots. Oh, I'm going to speak to a Gentile, and I should not hesitate because now God has declared the, the categories of cleanness and uncleanness as no longer uh, intact. And so I should be willing to go and speak to a Gentile man. And it says there, the next day, uh, verse 24, he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Now, I've preached a sermon on this passage before, and I'm, going to, I'm resisting the urge to preach it tonight, but I'm just going to make a quick side note, all right? 
Jonah was commanded to go to Nineveh and preach to the Gentile people, the Assyrians. And Jonah ran. You know where he ran from? Joppa. Peter's commanded to go to the Gentiles and preach in Joppa, and he goes. So I got a sermon called Your Joppa Moment. When God calls you, will you run or obey? But I'm not preaching that tonight. I'm just telling you, I, I got the sermon, and, and uh, it's, it's, I may preach it. All right, one, one night. So, so he goes from Joppa, and it says, On the following day, verse 24, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius uh, was expecting them had called them uh, together, called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I to him a man. As he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me the vision, the sheet, the unclean animals. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Cornelius told, tells him the story. God appeared to me, told me to send for you. Um, and he says there, um, Send therefore to Joppa, ask for Simon, who is called Peter, verse 32. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. You have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said. Okay, so we see how Peter and Cornelius and his household come together. Now we're going to see a worship service break out. All right, We're going to see a powerful movement of God in this gathered group of people. And we're going to see lives transformed. And we're going to see the ingredient surface as to what makes for a life-changing worship service. Number one, number one is invitation. Invitation. He says there to uh, Peter, he says, I sent for you at once, you've been kind enough to come. Uh, verse 33, now therefore we are all here in the presence of God. And so, earlier in the passage says he invited people to come, um, to, to gather together to hear the one that God would have been sending his direction. Now they are all together. And so, when Cornelius knew God was sending a special messenger, Cornelius went out and gathered family and friends and, and colleagues and gathered them in the house. Hey, come, come, God has a message for us. Come and, and hear that message. And the first ingredient for life-changing worship is invitation. Now, when we gather together, for example, on a Sunday morning, all right, we're getting together uh, in this uh, place of worship, we're expecting God to have a message for us, right? We believe that when we open our Bibles and the Spirit of God opens the eyes of our hearts and moves to apply the Word to our lives, that God himself is addressing his people. God is speaking to us. So we're coming expecting a message from God. And so that should drive us to invite, to say to other people, listen, we want you to come to our church, not because of the place and not because of the programs and not because of the, the, the preferences that may or may not be met. We want you to come because God is there. And God has a message for us to hear. And, and, and our Lord changes life. So come and, and, and invite, invite, invite. Uh, the people were gathered because of the invitation of Cornelius. And here's 
the startling and troubling statistic about invitation. You ready? Two out of ten Christians ever invite an unchurched person to church. Two out of ten. So for every 100 um, Christians, what's that? 20 ever invite an unreached, or unreached person to church, an unchurched person to church. And so there's a broad gap between those who name the name of Christ and the lost world being invited to come to church. And so the first ingredient for life-changing words is invite. Who can you invite to church this week? Invite to come on Sunday. Secondly, there's gathering. There's gathering. There in uh, verse 34, or I'm sorry, verse 33, they'd been invited and it says, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. They are gathered together. And in this group, there are Peter and his associates. So there are Christians here, right? And there are non-Christians here. And they are, they are together. And not only are there Christians and non-Christians, there is Jew and Gentile. This, was a big, this did not happen in the first century. Where Jews and Gentiles get together to hear from God. It just wasn't a thing that happened. And yet they are gathered together, which indicates that our invitation ought to be for anyone to come, right? Anyone to come and gather because we believe that God changes lives. Now in chapter 11, it's fascinating to read, after this powerful transformation happens, this powerful worship service uh, happens, the, the, the Jewish Christians hear about it and they interrogate Peter. What were you doing preaching to Gentiles? What were you doing in a Gentile home? What, what was that all about? And in chapter 11, uh, uh, Peter has to defend himself. But look what he says in chapter 11, verse 12. The Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. We should invite others without distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa, bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And then skip down to verse uh, 18. When they heard these things, Peter describes the worship service, which we'll talk about in a moment. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, the Jewish Christians. They glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So they hear, hey, God's working among Gentiles the way, same way he's working among Jews. They say, wow, that's awesome. And so we should invite others without distinction. In fact, look what uh, Peter says at the end of verse 17 in chapter 11. He says, who was I that I could stand in God's way? If God wanted to reach Gentiles, who am I to say No. I'm not going to the Gentiles. I don't like them very much. No, Peter says, if God will save people without distinction, if they turn to Christ, then I will preach without distinction. I will reach out without distinction. I will go to people without distinction. I will invite others without distinction. And so there's the invitation, first ingredient. There is gathering, second ingredient. Third, and this is important, there is expectancy. It says there in verse... 33, now therefore, of chapter 10, now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So they've been invited, 
They've gathered in the household of Cornelius, and now they're saying, we're about to hear a message from God. There's a, an expectancy here. Uh, it's as if they're sitting on the edge of their seats, waiting to hear from God. And what if that, that mindset marked our attendance at church? What if we came Sunday after Sunday after Sunday expecting to hear from God? expecting God to move, expecting God to change us. What if we came sitting on the edge of our seats, anticipating God moving in our lives? There was expectancy. Hey, by the way, I've noticed that people who pray for the worship service are more expectant for God to move. Just a thought. People that are praying are, are looking for God to answer their prayers. People that are just going through the motions, they're just sitting there just like, well, just another Sunday. But when we begin to pray, God, would you move in this service? Would you change lives? Expectancy begins to fill your heart. So there's invitation, there's gathering, there's expectancy. Number four, there's the presence of God. Back in verse 33, we are all here in the presence of God. They realized that God was, was putting all of this together. He had appeared to um, Cornelius in a vision. He had appeared to Peter in a vision. Supernatural things happening here. God's speaking to them. And now they believe, hey, God's here. God's here with us. The, the presence of God is here. And that's, that's a, 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 an integral uh, ingredient for life-changing worship. I, I've, I've been in, you know, the presence of God sometimes is hard to, to quantify it's hard to it's hard to um, it's hard to articulate the presence of God among His people, but I can tell you this. Anecdotally, I've been in services where God manifests His presence, and it's life changing. You'll never forget it. And I've been in services before where God is not moving, and it is evident. God, for whatever reason. Uh, God, God, is, uh, God is, is, is not showing his power and glory among his people. But here, the, he says, God is with us. We are here in the presence of God. Fifth ingredient, the word of God. The word of God. It says, we're here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So we want to hear what God says, right? We don't want to hear a message from Peter, right? I mean, you're the messenger, Peter, but... We know that you have a message that comes directly from God. The Word of God. And they wanted to hear from the Word of God. It, I, it's troubling to me. It's troubling to me that in, in many churches there is a de-emphasis on the Word of God. Because listen to me, you don't need to hear from Wade Humphreys every week. I'm not, I'm not particularly... Intelligent and witty and charming, and I just don't have a lot to make up every week to, to, to captivate you with something that is uh, meaningful. I'm, I don't, you know, but I have God's message, and God's message is captivating. God's message changes lives, and so we need the Word of God in our services if we want to have life changing worship. Uh, I've told you this before, and I'll tell you again. If for some reason you, you, you move from this area, because that's the only reason you can leave the church. But if you move from the area, all right, 
Uh, if you move from the area and you go somewhere else and you're looking for a church and you go to a church and the pastor does not open up a Bible, don't walk, run. And you can tell him I told you to do that, all right? All right? Because the Word of God is a necessary ingredient for life-changing works. It was amazing to me how many people gather in Christian churches and the Bible is de-emphasized. We need God's Word. Number six, the gospel clearly presented is an ingredient for life-changing worship. So starting there in verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, and he begins to, to share the gospel. Look what it says. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, with power. He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And, he, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day, made him to appear not to uh, all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What does Peter do? He clearly share, shares the gospel. Let me tell you about Jesus. He came to this earth, lived a perfect life, did miraculous things. He was nailed to the cross. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. He defeated sin and death. Therefore, if you place your faith in him, if you receive him, believe in him, you will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. He shares the gospel. The gospel is clearly presented. I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to be clearly presented in our worship gatherings because Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That there, there's, there's, there's power when you share the gospel. God uses that message to save, to change people's lives. So in this gathering, the gospel is clear, clearly presented. Number seven. Number seven. Do you have eight ingredients on your sheet? I don't know why it says ten at the top. That would be my faux pas. All right, sorry about that. I think I might have had 10 and I didn't get to 9 and 10. All right. Um, number seven is the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of that, that's bothered you the whole time, hasn't it? Y'all, some of you haven't heard a word I've said because you're thinking, he's got 10 and there's only eight and what's going on here? And, and you just, yes, sir. It's bothered you the whole time. Okay, sorry. I'm sorry, Barry. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'll figure out what the other two were, and we'll try to get to them. Okay, number seven, the power of the Holy Spirit. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. If you remember our lesson on Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones, God moves by his word through his spirit. The spirit of God applies the word of God to people's hearts and changes them. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of our sin and shows us our need for a Savior and draws us to the Father. So as Peter is preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit 
falls, the Holy Spirit is moving on those who heard the word of God. And it says there, as they see the Holy Spirit fall in a tangible way, it says the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So the power of the Holy Spirit is there. And we believe in the Trinity. One God existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I'll be honest with you, I grew up in a Baptist church. We talked a lot about God the Father, talked a lot about God the Son. I don't remember talking much about the Holy Spirit. Now, it could have been that I just was clueless, you know, and they were talking a lot about the Holy Spirit, but I don't remember talking much about the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit here falls on the gathered assembly, and lives are changed. I came across this quote when I was studying from A.W. Tozier, who wrote a lot about worship. He said, I remind you that there are churches so completely out of the hands of God that if the Holy Spirit withdrew from them, they wouldn't find it, find it out for many months. <laughs> in other words, it's, it's possible to do worship in your own strength and never really have the, the power of the Spirit moving among you because you don't see your need for the Holy Spirit. And then number eight, there's obedient response. It says there, and we'll deal with one other issue, then we'll be through. It says, they were hearing them, verse 46, speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They asked him to remain for some days. So what happens? They hear the gospel, place their faith in Christ. Holy Spirit comes, they're baptizing the Spirit. Holy Spirit comes to enter their life, to, to, to take up residence in their life. And then they're commanded to be baptized, and they are baptized. And they follow the Lord obediently, an obedient response to the gospel. And so those are the eight, not ten, the eight ingredients for life-changing worship. Invitation, gathering, expectancy, the presence of God, the Word of God, the gospel clearly presented, the power of the Holy Spirit, obedient response. These are the things we want to see happen when we gather because we anticipate believers coming together to be edified, to worship Jesus, and unbelievers hearing the gospel and being changed. In fact, I want to show you uh, an example of this. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Verse 24, this is in the context of a discussion about prophecy and tongues, and, and uh, we're not going to get into that tonight. Uh, we will one day. We're not getting into that tonight. But I just want to show you um, an application of the discussion on spiritual gifts here, and it, and it goes back to what can happen in a corporate worship setting. If all prophesy and an unbeliever outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. In other words, if someone's... If someone's preaching in an intelligible, intelligible manner, then when someone comes in, an outsider that does not know Jesus, they can understand what's being said. And it says, He is convicted by all. He is called account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's what happened in Acts chapter 10. Paul says that's what can happen when the church gets together. That we get together with all these ingredients and an unbeliever can be there in our midst. And the Spirit moves, the, the gospel's presented, the Word of God is proclaimed. 
There's expectancy there, and unbelievers can get to the point where they say, I need a Savior, and fall on their face and worship the one true God. That's what we want to see happen in our worship services. The recipe for life-changing worship. I want to make one more quick application of this text before we, uh, we pray um, tonight. Um, because it's kind of fresh on my mind. Um, the, the, the question, you know, I want to use Cornelius as an illustration of a theological truth. So I, I get the question often um, when I preach about missions, unreached people groups, that we need to go and tell people about Jesus so that they can be saved and, and not go to hell when they die, right? And I, and I get the question often, what about, what about the tribe you know, in the middle of Africa and they've never met a Christian. They've never heard about Jesus. Um, they've, they've, there's just no knowledge of the gospel at all. If, if they die, do they go to hell or do they get kind of a pass and they go to heaven because they never heard and never had to, to uh, decide to accept or reject the gospel? And the reason this is fresh on my mind is because on Monday night of this uh, conference I just preached, and I preached on missions, and I preached about unreached people groups. And uh, a gentleman in the church went up to the pastor of the church and asked him that very same question. Very same question. I'll tell you what the pastor said in a minute. And so the question, what about, what about, that, what about that group of people that have never heard the name of Jesus? Do they go to heaven when they die because no one's got to them with the gospel? And Romans chapter 1 tells us that, that people all over the face of the earth are without excuse. Because... God has revealed himself through the created order. It says in Romans 1, he's, 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 he's revealed his invisible attributes, his great power. And so what he's saying is, is that, that, that people should be able to, to walk outside and look around and say, someone's behind this, someone big and powerful and mighty. And whoever's behind it, I want to know him. I want to worship him. I, I, I need to know who that God is, right? That, that should be the response we see the created order. Also, Romans 2 says we have the uh, inner witness of conscience. We, have this, we, we all have this innate sense of, of there's, there are things that are right and things that are wrong. The conscience has been marred by the fall, but there's always, everyone has this kind of sense of conscience that God put there. And it's, again, evidence that there is a God, a moral lawgiver in the universe. But here's the problem Romans 1 says people go outside. And they see the witness of creation. They see the invisible attributes of God. The, the power of one who is divine behind it all. And they say, I don't want to worship that God. It even says they suppress the light that is giving to them. They turn away from the light and chase their dark deeds. And it says they begin to worship the creature rather than the creator. So God gives light to everyone on the face of the earth. But many reject the light and turn from it. But I believe there are some who see the light of creation, the, 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 the evidence of God, and they say, I want to know that God. And I believe if someone responds in that way, God will send them someone to tell them about that God. Case in point, Cornelius. Cornelius said, I want to know who the God, I want to know who the one true God is. I fear this God you're worshiping. And he's paying alms, and he's praying, he's trying, to, he's trying to figure it out. He's not a Christian yet, but he has a, a fear for God because he wants to know the truth. And what does God do? 
God sends him a witness through Peter. He uses visions to do it, dreams and visions to get him there. And he tells, tells the gospel, shares the gospel, Cornelius and his household are saved. So I'm just telling you, if God wants to send a witness to someone who is seeking after the light, he can do that. He can use dreams, visions, whatever he wants to do. But he can get the message to them, right? So no one has an excuse on Judgment Day. Because God's given us the created order. But if people will respond to the light that God gives them, I believe God will send them more light. And I believe Cornelius is an example of this. Hey, by the way, just a thought. If people could be saved by not hearing the name of Jesus, then the most compassionate thing Jesus could have done on the mountain before he ascended was to kill his disciples instead of commission them. Right? The best thing he could have done is say, hey, let's, let's, let's squash this whole message about Jesus so no one will hear it and no one will be accountable. Then everyone will go to heaven, right? But he doesn't do that. He says, go and tell people need to hear. Preach the gospel to every creature so they can be saved. So, preached a conference and um, this, it was a young man. A young man walked up to the pastor and said, do people who are in a tribe on the backside of nowhere that never heard of Jesus, do they, do they die and go to hell if they aren't saved, if they have never placed their faith in Christ? And the pastor said, yes. And he kind of shared the same thing I just shared about without excuse. And when he shared that, here's what the young man, young man said. He said, well, we're not doing enough. And the pastor said, that's the point. Exactly. We must be about God's work to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Letting God use us to encounter Corneliuses everywhere and tell them about Jesus. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.